Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Andres Clarenz. I pronounced that correctly. You can practice that a few times. And we're talking about the regional implications of carbon dioxide removal in meeting net zero targets for the United States, published in Environmental Research Letters. Welcome to the show, Andres. Is that right? That's close enough. Close enough. I've been trying really hard. Say it how it should be said. It's Andres Clarence. Andres. Andres. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Bit better. Fine. Okay. So this has got a decent list of authors, uh, including some people I've heard of. Jay Furman's a pretty good egg. So do you want to tell us how the paper came about, what the you know, project is part of, and why you thought it was a, a project worth doing? Sure. So, yeah, I understand Jay's been on the podcast before, and he, Jay is a former PhD student of mine and now a really outstanding scientist at the Joint Global Change Research Institute up in, up in Maryland. Um, this paper is part of a longer initiative collaboration between the folks at the, at the JICRI and at the University of Virginia, where we're trying to understand... What was the first institution you mentioned? The Joint Global Change Research Institute, which is right, okay. sometimes referred to as JICRI, yeah. So it's it's joint initiative between the University of Maryland and Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, so part of the Department of Energy in the United States. And they are one of the groups that... But, um, but there, we, so, so Maryland, that's the southeast, isn't it? Or, you know, that kind of area. And then Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is right up in sort of Oregon area, isn't it? So aren't they about mm, as far away yeah. as possible? That's like having University of Sudan collaborating with the University of Cambridge. It's a, an odd selection. What, what led to uh, that collaboration? Um, yeah, so, I mean, they are in different areas, although... Pacific Northwest National Lab has a, a research branch office in Washington, D.C., University of Maryland's outside of D.C., so mid-Atlantic, United States. And the reason for the collaboration is that the impetus for building or the, the origin, if you look at the origins of, of where integrated modeling started in the United States, a lot of it came out of out of the University of Maryland and collaboration with the Department of Energy, given that a lot of the early days modeling was really focused on the energy system exclusively. And so this is the shop that puts out GCAM, which is the IPCC class model that comes out of the United States that gets used for... What does know, that stand for? GCAM, Global Change Analysis Model. And right. so it is, yeah, so it's the US-based integrated model. There are many others, right? There are several European ones. From- so when, it, when you start talking about an integrated model, you're talking about one that's got land use change and energy and everything like that in, integrated into it. Yeah. So it's just a climate model, right? Exactly. So the initial motivation for building these models was to understand not just how the energy system and the transportation system were going to evolve over the course of decades and how those would relate to climate systems, right? So that that was like the initial thing they were trying to understand. And then over the years, they have become much more sophisticated and they can incorporate other biophysical parameters and factors. And so they, they can answer questions about hydrology. They can answer questions about agriculture. They can answer questions about a lot of other systems that are all tied into to, you know, future climate states. And so that, you know, they, they get used at the international and national level to try and understand where where we are today and how we might get to 
future worlds in which, you know, climate change is a, is a big thing or maybe hopefully less of a big thing. Okay, great. So that tells me a bit about the sort of model heritage you've got and institutional, but what was it that provoked you to write this specific paper? Did someone mm-hmm. give you a ton of money or did it just seem like a good idea or was it recycling data from another study? Tell me how it com- comes about because people are as interested sure. to understand how you got there is where you got. Sure, sure. Um, it's a good question. So we do have a, a couple of different grants, most recently one from the National Science Foundation. And the, the motivation for some of our work is, is to really explore why it is that these integrated models, which are used at, for important decision-making functions, why they all tend to be heavily reliant on carbon removal. So, you know, at this point... Well, the obvious the, answer is there's too much of the stuff in the atmosphere. Sure, sure. But integrated models are trying to get a sense of, you know, they're trying to get a sense for what, what the future holds. And that's challenging to do, especially when you're talking 10, 20, 30 years into the future. And especially when you're talking about uh, technological transitions that we don't have a ton of precedence for. And so um, plenty of precedents for technological transitions. They've had all happened all the time. You know, the sure. mobile phones, rise of the automobile. Absolutely. Um, no, I totally we've agree. Had plenty of energy, we've had plenty of energy transitions as well. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, one of the things about energy transitions that we know from history is that it's, it's very easy to add new energy sources like oil, but very hard mm-hmm. to take the old ones away. You know, we, mm-hmm. we still use, as far as I understand, comparably as much biomass as we ever did even though we've added, you know, oil and nuclear energy and all of the others since the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, is what you've just said there, you know, really robust? Or do you, do you think that my argument that there is, I mean, I've, I've written a paper previously where we didn't manage to get through peer review and it kind of fell apart in a really annoying way, as happens often in academia, seemingly more to me than other people. But hey, on, on the, precisely this issue of energy transitions or, or you know, mm-hmm. the technology and social transitions accompanying mm-hmm. energy transitions, you know, do, do, you, do you stand by the same thing you've made, or do you think that history does teach us about these technology transitions? I, I completely agree with your point. In fact, Jay's first paper when he was a PhD student did look at a variety of different technologies, um, historical transitions that have taken place. And we tried to understand how that might help us understand transitions and adoption of things, technologies related to carbon removal. So no, completely agree. I think my point earlier was that modeling the set of conditions and underlying technologies, processes, supply chains, so on, that would be necessary to deploy negative emissions is challenging, right? Because these are yeah, I agree. All- but what you're describing there, but mm-hmm. what you're describing there is bot, it's bottom up model, right? So you're basically trying to go to a kind of economy or system level model by mm-hmm. modeling all the intermediate processes, right? An alternative approach is the one that I took in the paper that I wrote and failed to get published, which is to look at a top down approach and to look at saying, well, look, what does the technology transformation look like when it happens, and in terms of the you know the gross scale of change not worry too much about how that change occurs at the level of an individual household or an individual power plant or whatever. 
and just look at what happens in the economy as a whole. So mm-hmm. it sounds like the approach that you're taking here is like a bottom-up modeling approach. Doesn't that make life kind of hard for you? Yeah, so it's a really good question. And in fact, really gets at the heart of what the motivation for this paper was. You know, the integrated models that do do top-down modeling, right? I mean, fundamentally, these are global models that are, you know, simulating abstractions of the energy system, transportation system, and so on, just because they are so big, you know, they're, they're not doing bottom-up modeling in most cases. All of these models, in order to meet the international targets that have been set, set forth in Paris and other discussions, you know, they all adopt pretty, pretty significant amounts of carbon removal. And as you said earlier, you know, a lot of this is tied to the fact that there's just so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and we have to develop techniques for cleaning some of that up. And so... Well, well we the, can, I'll, I'll ch- I can challenge that to start off with. I mean, do you not think that there's equally a possibility that people just think, well, that's just too damn expensive, we won't bother? Yes, but let's come back to that question because I think that the question about cost is sort of tied to some of what we were talking about before around technology transitions. And so, you know, understanding how historical technologies have been adopted and also how costs of those technologies have changed in time as they've hit sort of critical scale. But before we talk about, let me just answer your earlier question about bottom-up versus top-down, because I think the motivation for this paper was that many of these global models, if not all, were with their top-down modeling, predicting really large deployments of negative emissions on the scale of gigatons of carbon removed every year. And so if you sit down and think about what that would mean on the ground, in the communities, in the states, in the provinces that would actually site these facilities, we wanted to take a first stab at understanding what the consequences of deploying technology at this scale, right? That you add them all up and they're removing gigatons of carbon at a global scale. What does that mean, you know, on the ground well, for the for the places? Let, let me just come come back on that, on that point because I think there's a risk of, of us talking across purposes. So the, mm-hmm. the, the top-down modeling that I think you're criticizing is basically saying how much carbon removal do we need and then assuming that it will be delivered. That's never criticizing. I've, okay, well, and that's never an approach that I've, that I've, I've advocated, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it's got some pretty obvious flaws. Top-down modeling approach that I'm suggesting is, is perhaps more of a kind of halfway house between what you've done and and the and these sort of big biogeophysical models that just sort of say, how much do, you, do we need? And then assuming that somehow we'll get there, right? The approach that I've previously taken is to look at logistics curves, to look at how technologies transition from one dominant paradigm to another. So why is mobile phones being a good one? You know, most people don't have a phone in their home now, but my parents' generation certainly did have a home phone, and um, that 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 has happened in a you know somewhat predictable way without having to look at everybody's yeah. talk plan, right? And what I think you're doing is is something which is more similar to perhaps like an agent-based modeling approach. If you know, I'm probably misusing the term, but I think you're taking a more atomized approach in this paper. Is that is that right? No, this is not age-based modeling. And okay. I want to just want to clarify, integrated models are, are not biophysical models primarily. They're economic models. And so the way that they're formulated is that you model the, you know, you model the principal 
industrial sectors that contribute to climate change. So the power sector, the transportation sector, the industrial sector, agriculture, et cetera. And then you give the model some constraint, whether that is, you know, a, a warming target or getting to net zero by some date. You know, you pick the target, give the model that constraint. And then the model solves for the least cost pathway to achieve that target. So for the is that a Pareto system, efficiency model then? So you, you've got a load of ways that the economy can be configured to make, you know, simple terms. You, you can either make apples or automobiles and then it will solve to work out the maximum amount of happiness that you get in the economy when you, you balance those those production approaches. So you're, it's a, like a resource deployment model, a resource allocation model is well, how so, your, your, the fundamental yeah. modeling approach works. Yeah, yeah. So you've thrown out a bunch of terms that are probably triggering for economists, and I'm not an economist, and I don't pretend to be. I'm an engineer, but and so my my role in this collaboration is really trying to represent emerging technologies as effectively as possible. But as I understand integrated modeling, they are fundamentally at their core economic models that are trying to understand future states of the economy, subject to some constraints. That those constraints are usually getting to net zero by some future date. And that's what we modeled in this paper. To the, to the point about scale, because there was, you know, you were asking some questions about sort of the scale of the modeling. The integrated modeling community, which had or has historically been done at the global scale, has over the past you know, decade or so really been moving towards creating tools that can bridge scales and answer questions at the more local scale because what you have is a lot of subnational jurisdictions maybe cities maybe counties whatever asking questions about how they can contribute to decarbonization efforts and so um, these models which were really never designed to to function at these at these smaller temporal scales are are really trying to develop fundamentally you know they are they are economic models and there is this there is this framing about how we how we get to future states and so it's important whenever so, so the earliest ones in that tradition would be rice and dice right yes so you've got those that. and those are those are stylized very stylized models that are not you know they were useful did you want to give us the acronyms because i don't like acronyms and nobody does because unless you're familiar with the acronyms you understand what people are talking about so Dice is a regional version of dice. What does dice stand for? Uh, dice. I don't know actually what dice stands for off off the top of my head. Dynamic. I don't know. Uh, it is. It's one of the most famous models in the world, isn't it? And we can't. Neither of us can remember what it's dynamic of integrated climate economy model. There we go. Okay. Right, there we go. Thank you for correcting my ignorance. So, um, yeah, you like I I don't want to break your flow. If you can get go complete the point you were. On previously, and I'll edit it. It's embarrassing. The big point I wanted to make about this, about this downscaling effort, which was the motivation for the paper, was that whenever you look at results coming out of integrated models, it's always important to remind yourself of what integrated models are, in which ways they're useful, what how they're fundamentally limited, and so you know they are these economic models that are trying to solve for future states of the of the, the climate system, of the technologies we have deployed, and so on. And so, you know, because of their structure, you see that certain that the model likes to pick 
certain technologies. And one of them is, is negative emissions technologies, because it is, even though, as you said, today, negative emissions is, is very expensive. But, you know, if we assume learning by doing, if we assume that these technologies can become cheaper in the future, it may well be that 10 years, 20 years from now, for certain industrial sectors, using or relying or leaning on on these forms of, of carbon removal is going to be the most efficient choice rather than, you know, decarbonization for some of the, the difficult to abate industrial sectors. So an academic approach that could probably be best described as fingers crossed, right? That, do you mean, do you mean that the costs will go down? Well, I mean, you're, there's a whole bunch of assumptions there. So that, that relies on um, experience curves driving down the costs. When we've seen that certain industries, that doesn't happen, like nuclear, for example, has got consistently more expensive rather than consistently cheaper. So mm. there are experience curve effects, Moore's law type effects, you know, phones these days are much more capable and similarly priced to phones a few years ago, right? But then you've got other industries, as, as we said, like nuclear, that don't really seem to get any cheaper car insurance, things like that, right? You know, they seem to remain expensive, right? Uh, and the other thing is that you've, you've got a, a sort of a, a social capability concept as well, that you're assuming that sort of society in future will be willing and capable to clean up today's mess. It's like, it's like going, to a, going out to a party or having a pie in your house and then not bothering to clear up the mess and just having some children instead on the, in the hope that those children will then grow up to be responsible citizens and clear up the mess from your party, right? It's there, there are some pretty obvious flaws as to why that might not be the genius idea it seems at first sight, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think that you're, you're getting at the motivating assumption behind this work, right? Because all these models are saying negative emissions are a big part of our pathway to dealing with climate change. And, and, and I think that what we need is to stress test that assumption, right? And so this paper is an effort to try and stress test that assumption by saying, okay, if we are going to deploy these technologies at this enormous scale, right? And, and one of the things, you know, I think your, your analogies were useful because they are, they kind of highlight how preposterous some of this is. But when the thing about carbon removal is that the the levels at which it's being discussed are just absolutely sort of bonkers, right? Like really, really large amounts of carbon removal. But um, I mean, let, let, let's put this into perspective because I think it's important that people, you know, reflect on the realities of it. So I was actually chatting privately to someone this morning on a Zoom call and he was saying, every time I see a plane take off, you look at that and you think of it in the context of carbon removal. We've got to basically fly around in the atmosphere and catch all of that carbon dioxide that's been released by that plane flight and then every other plane flight that's ever happened right back to you know Wright Brothers to get the atmosphere back to where it should be, right? You know, that's not by anybody's stretch of the imagination a trivial task. And it's no, got to be done a good... on a pretty rapid time scale as well, because it's the area under the curve, right? All of that carbon dioxide while it's in the air at the moment is heating up the world. And the only way to get rid of it is to get rid of that heating effect is to remove all of the carbon dioxide that we've ever released, right? Now, I mean, some well, of them have reacted we wouldn't have to remove, we've March, right? Yeah, we wouldn't have to remove all of it. But that's, that's a good, that's an interesting framing. I, mean, I think one way I think about it is that, you know, these days we emit gigaton scale of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, you know, and, and, and 
much of that comes from combustion of fossil fuels. And if you think about the infrastructure that we have currently built out to extract those fossil fuels and burn them, so that would mean you know, the economies of many, many nations around the world that are dominated by fossil fuel extraction, you know, cities like Houston, which is one of the biggest cities in the United States, whose economy is almost entirely dedicated to oil and gas, you know, the, the, the scale of what it takes to emit, you know, gigatons worth of CO2 every year, you know, everybody driving a, a, a vehicle that, that burns this, this petroleum. I mean, the scale of it is, is massive. Now think of what an industry would look like that would do the same thing, but in reverse, you know, the idea that- Well, I mean, a lot of people might just argue, and probably not without good reason, that this whole thing's just poppycock. It's just never going to happen. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a totally reasonable, and I think we need to be incredibly skeptical. The reason why, in, in my opinion, you can't just dismiss these projections that suggest that negative emissions are going to be needed at this enormous scale is that that is our plan, right? At the international well, yeah, level. But it might, it might it's like, have all kinds of plans, but... Yeah, no, but this is like plan A, you know? It's like, okay, cool, cool. We're just going to hold off. Well, it was plan B until about five minutes ago. Now we're yeah, yeah, plan exactly. A, okay, worked, so it's been our plan so now we're at B. And so, yeah, so I mean, like, this is a really, this is like baked into the cake when the United Nations comes out and says, you know, we've got a plan to limit warming to two degrees C, you know? can't get to two degrees c without these technologies and so well, let I, me give, let me give you an alternative alternative point of view right because mm-hmm. i think it's important we debate something i think many people might see a bit been a bit more practical right mm-hmm. so yeah you could in theory condemn your grandchildren to pay trillions of dollars to go and remove i mean we've done like i think it's one to two trillion tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere you're looking at about a hundred dollars a ton so you're looking at hundreds of trillions of dollars to reverse mm-hmm. that if we're going to take it all out again and unless we do take it all out again, we're going to have to deal with some residual warming. And when you start, you know, that's that's like a hundred hundred apples that we're going to have to pay, right? To mm-hmm. the value of Apple, the company, mm-hmm. pay a hundred times that to remove all that carbon dioxide. I mean, that's really you know stretching the limits of what the world can pay for, right? So um, we don't have infinite financial resources. So I think what's perhaps a more reasonable way of looking at, at this is to say, well, what we could do instead is to make a carbon tax equivalent to the value of the the social cost of carbon right and then compel people to use um carbon dioxide removal if they want to avoid that carbon tax and when the social cost of carbon and the value of uh, cdr cross over so it does more damage than it costs you to remove then it becomes cheaper to remove the carbon and to leave it in the air right and so that you know for all these edge on call flights and stuff that's kind of difficult to do with renewables then people are going to start using carbon dioxide removal for that. And so the carbon industry wouldn't then be on trillion ton scale. It might be on, you know, five gigatons a year scale on that. And I might be fine. I mean, do you, do, you, do you hold that as being a sensible approach or do you think that's just stupid? I think that um, your argument has mixed a couple of different things. When I, uh, when I was talking about the necessity of negative emissions in these modeling runs, I was really thinking about sort of the biophysical reality of where we are today, how much we're emitting, how much future emissions we're committed to based on the existing infrastructure systems and, you know, how long power plants are going to last and 
and and you know how quickly we can how quickly the energy transition is going to take and so on and so that's kind of like you know my wheelhouse which is a little bit more sort of you know biophysical constraints on these systems i think your your point really was about if we want to if we want to you know induce change in in this system how do we how do we do that from a sort of policy or- well, well, well kind of i mean i touched on the policy stuff but my central point was really that cdr is a tool for future emissions rather than historic emissions because the cost of dealing with historic emissions is just it's just too large a problem and and, and it's it's quite feasible to to say to people henceforth you know well we've got a cdr now you should be using it if you're not using it we're going to tax you and we can spend those taxes on getting someone else to do it on your behalf that that's not an unreasonable proposition but to say to the world at large well actually we need a hundred trillion dollars off you to go and remove you know half or all of the cdr carbon and dioxide that's been released that, that you know that's a really big ask to be making to people the global pop- populace when a lot of those people might not have very much money anyway so you yeah. know it's no that's fair that's reasonable i mean i will say so to the extent that there's any empirical data on carbon dioxide removal and where it's being deployed you know that line between future emissions and historic emissions is one that is already being crossed so microsoft you know is yeah i get it but microsoft is not really a large-scale emitter it's it's a it's a high margin tech company company and they are early movers so they're getting what you know the the lowest cost forms of cdr by virtue of you know being a being you know a first mover well, that's not true because they're in most cases they're they're paying high prices because the technology is unsophisticated. I mean, some of the nature-based solutions might be low price because there right. are some forests that are easier to save or whatever. And I get, I understand Microsoft is using quite a lot of nature-based solutions as mm-hmm. part of their work. But you know, in general, I don't think that they're necessarily skimping it. Um, I, no, I you're right; they're not skimping it. But they, I only mention Microsoft, and you know, we didn't model Microsoft here, but I only mention Microsoft because. A big part of their motivation is dealing with historic emissions from their activities. Yeah, I, I get it, but I think the case of Microsoft is so different from the case of you know someone like ExxonMobil or whatever, where the carbon is inherent to their business that you can't really make a logical leap from one to the other because the cases are so enormously different. But let, let's let's go back to the fundamental premise of your paper, right? So what you're what you're, you're doing is you're assuming we're going to be needing this sort of very large-scale carbon removal, quite different from what I'm suggesting might be a more perhaps pragmatic level of carbon removal. And you are going to be getting the U.S. biogeophysical environment to absorb this carbon and the U.S. economy to provide the tools to do it, right? That's the fundamental premise of your paper, right? So we've given, we've given quite a lot of context and background. And let's get into the nuts and bolts of what does your work actually imply that we're going to need to do to sure. uh, to get this work done? Yeah. So, um, so as I mentioned earlier, the, there's been a interest in trying to develop tools that can sort of bridge scales and understand what would what would some of these forecasts or projections for global scale futures mean at the at the more regional or state level or you know even city level scale, and so what we did is we took a model called GCAM USA, so Global Change Analysis Model for the United States. What this does is it runs the global version of GCAM, but then it does a, it solves for each individual U.S. state 
And so it can understand, you know, how the energy system is going to change, how the agricultural system is going to change, how, you know, the industrial system is going to change within each of the states. And, and it begins to give you a higher resolution depiction of what, you know, what, what. And is it always at least cost solver? That's the approach. Yes, taking, yes, right? yes, yes. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I wanted to talk about, you know, what are the, what are the, the underlying structural characteristics of integrated models, but, because I think it's really important to... Let me immediately give you a bit of pushback on that, because mm-hmm. that, that raises some pretty concerning assumptions, right? So mm-hmm. firstly, if you're looking at at least cost solver, it mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily allocate cost proportionally, right? So it might solve to least cost, but that might mean that the rich people end up paying a very low proportion of their wealth and poor people end up paying a rather higher proportion of their wealth, which is, you know, one aspect potentially of injustice that's embedded in the system. The other one is that if you if you take state like, for example, Washington State, where it's got a lot of tech industry, not a lot of oil industry, then you might say, well, you know, they've had the foresight to build uh, their economy on a sustainable basis from the get go. Why do they have to pay to clean up emissions from, say, Texas, which has got a much higher level of emissions? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think that the, the 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 equity considerations associated with the with the deployment of negative emissions is is a really important topic that you've touched on here. I know that Jay Furman, one of my co-authors, and and previously was on the podcast talking about paper that we wrote in. Um, nature of climate change a few years back. And in that paper, he showed that if you solved GCAM at the global scale, what you saw is deployment a lot of, of a lot of these technologies, which are very land intensive, being pushed to the global south. So essentially, because land is cheaper and rents are cheaper in in the global south, you get a lot of a lot of these technologies being deployed there, and then that has these these consequences on food prices and and other things that raise enormous equity concerns. You know, in essence, what we're saying is that the you know industrialized nations have have gotten us into this mess with climate change, and now we're sort of looking to the global south to bail us out. And and you know the these these future states that the model, without even getting to the modeling that we want to talk about today. You know, looking at the global scale, many, many red flags, many sources of concern from an equity perspective. So I think this this well, let's not get too politically radical because the world has been happily uh, screwing over Africans for many generations, and I'm sure yeah. you have. No, I'm not screwing over. For sure, we're talking about we're talking about much more important concerns of equity. The fine dividing line between different groups of rich Americans. So, yeah. um, <laughs> can you can you? Speak can you speak to, uh, you may laugh, but this is how politics works. The, um, the, the model that you've got, can you, can you point to obvious examples of uh, inequity or, or problematic, as you might call it, solutions? Yeah. That might yeah, yeah, yeah. Result yeah. So, I mean, the high level conclusion or the high level observation we made when we, when we ran the model was that there's, there's very different levels of negative emissions deployed around the United States. And that maybe isn't that surprising to somebody who, you know, takes a moment to think about what what's involved, what negative emissions would require. Well, there are two questions, two questions that arise. So, I mean, you can either say, well, why does that happen? Let's look at the, the input factors. But 
Um, for now, I'd, I'd just like to briefly summarise the output factors. You know, who who gets done over in this, and how badly do they get done over? Uh, plow over all the towns in Wyoming and turn into forests, or, or what? Mm. Who 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 suffers? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know that I can answer the question of who suffers, but I can answer the question of, you know, who are the winners and who are the losers? And it seems like, you know, you think about these technologies as having requisite inputs. So land is one you mentioned, depending on what you're talking about. We modeled only a few forms of negative emissions. So we modeled afforestation, we modeled direct air capture, we modeled bioenergy with carbon capture. And so naturally, if those are the options that the model has at its disposal, it's going to show that the areas that have a lot of agricultural land are going to be best suited for bioenergy with carbon capture, right? The ones that have access to a lot of geologic carbon storage, so you mentioned Texas earlier, as being a state that's got a lot of fossil fuel resources, but it also has a lot of pore space underneath it. And so that is suitable for carbon capture. And so if, if a lot of these negative emissions technologies, particularly direct air capture, require, require pore space for you to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and then put it somewhere, places with a lot of pore space are going to come out winning. And so we found is... So flat um, fields and fluffy rocks is what you need then, basically. There you go. There you go. You're, you're a marketing genius, Andrew. Okay. Well, I'm wasted on this podcast, aren't I? <laughs> so um, yeah, if you look, your, your model is basically looking for flat fields and fluffy rocks, but flat fields in some cases with the power supply because you want the backs and in some cases you want the forestation. So you just want places you can get to and stick a few trees on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so so there's there's the question of what are the inputs that would cause the model to say this is a suitable place for this. And then there's the question of what kinds of implications is that going to have for these places, right? The integrated model tracks a bunch of different things. So it tracks tracks electricity, obviously, but it also tracks, you know, primary energy, so natural gas. It tracks fertilizer. So if you're going to start growing a bunch of biofuel crops, maybe some of them require fertilizer or not. And so that's going to have an impact on your, you know, you, you can sort of do the accounting on that. And then the model also tracks water. And so if you're doing agriculture uh, or afforestation that requires water, you can begin to understand, okay, if we deployed these forms of CDR at this scale, how much is that going to impact these other, you know, adjacent, adjacent sectors, these, these other form- flows that are necessary to, to achieve CDR at this scale? Okay, so... Your fertilizer plant will potentially be diverting fertilizer that you would otherwise use for, say, corn. But equally, it might make fertilizers cheaper because you are making more of them overall. So there's an economy of scale effect and you're kind of balancing out these things to work out what happens in the whole economy. Right. That's the thrust of what you're doing. A relatively higher cost in terms of which states are going to be suffering or, or, or bearing the cost or accommodating these industries. Which ones are going to be most effective? Yeah, I mean. I think suffering is one way to think about it. Another way to think about it could be, you know, if we live in a future world in which carbon removal is a commodity and certain firms or governments are willing to pay for it, then, you know, that activity is going to naturally be cited in the places with the resources where it can be delivered most 
economically. And so the there could be suffering, but there could also be, you know, there could also be business opportunity. Well, there's Mark, there's brass to quote a British Yorkshire. So where if it's not suffering, it's, it's, it's tremendous riches. So yeah. who's going to be benefiting yeah. from these tremendous yeah, riches? I mean, yeah, exactly. So so the question is kind of like, you know, we're not, we didn't sort of get into into that sort of interstate, you know, commerce, you know, flow of of revenue associated with doing some of this. Ours was really focused on understanding the first of all where you would do it based on the the resource base in a particular place and then what the what the knock-on effects might be in terms of other other processes right so modeling it from a from a thinking about the engineering of it but certainly you could consider the fact that the economics of it might play out in such a way that you could get you know job creation other things that we didn't we didn't measure in this paper okay what i'm trying to draw you on is which states are going to be the ones mm-hmm. that are impacted. I mean, does sure. basically everything happen in Texas or is it kind of spread around or how's, yeah. where does the model still solve to? Yes. Texas has come up a couple of times and I would call that, you know, I would say that that, that, that was one of the really shocking results from our analysis, which is how dominant Texas, Texas is likely to be. And well, you'd expect, that, I mean, just from a layman's point of view, you'd expect that to an extent because it's, it's a big state. It's got a big economy. It's got, got a lot of people in it. It's got a lot of energy resource in it, and it's got a lot of poor space. So the only thing you can't do much of in Texas is farming. They do quite a lot of ranching, but it's not really an arable kind of place, right? So it's not it's not unexpected that Texas would form quite a big part of your analysis, right? It's not unexpected if you sit down and think about it. But yeah, no, all the things you said are right. Texas. Well, I'm is- standing up, and I thought about it just fine. Yeah. Um, so what other states have got a significant burden or opportunity as a result of all of this yeah well i mean so i think before we move beyond texas or or too far beyond texas you can you can consider texas alongside the economy of california which is also you know equally large and uh california in contrast to texas has much lower potential for negative emissions primarily because of that poor space issue you know California doesn't have the, the the storage potential that Texas does. And so you don't see as much of these technologies. I think at this point, looking at that contrast between California and Texas, and 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 also noting that California's got quite a bit has has a huge agricultural potential. The I think that it's worth pointing out the dependency on carbon capture and storage behind a lot of these a lot of these representations of carbon dioxide removal you know all many not all but many of these of these technologies end with you taking some co2 and putting it into a geologic storage repository some some formation deep in the subsurface that may or may not be a thing that we do at large scale in the future I think a lot of people think it's it's inevitable it's necessary well, when you're saying CCS I assume that you're meaning carbon dioxide removal with an underground storage component rather than just straight CCS, which is something more associated with coal power plants or oil refineries and stuff like that, right? It's not normally seen as being pure CDR, right? Right. Well, I mean, CCS, the process of taking, you know, compressed carbon dioxide and injecting it into into a subsurface formation can be done for a power plant, taking it from a point source, or it can be done from 
you know, a direct air capture unit. Okay, yeah, I just want to clarify that. Either, yeah, technology is the same. The question is just yeah. whether we're ever going to do it. So, you know, yeah. it's technology that we've known that we've known you, about for many for decades and the, the industry is sort of stuck in second gear in terms of scaling up can i i just want to comment on a couple of points you made like so you're talking about pore space but you don't necessarily need pore space to do storage because you can do storage in saline aquifers right so uh, is that something there too. okay but but the saline aquifers are not typically located in the old oil lands right because you don't that, you know, it's a different ge- geology. I think that's mainly in sandstones. Is, is that right? Or yeah. So, um, yeah. So the the so Texas has you know depleted oil fields, but also has a lot of saline aquifers. And so the the way that the model captures that in the, at the scale at which the model operates is that it has cost curves for each of the regions of the United States, and these were developed by the Department of Energy, where they looked at sort of all of the geologic assets and they thought about you know, you know, to a first significant digit, how much CO2 could we store there in the different regions of the United States? And so the model has that at its disposal. In California, what happens is because it's so geologic act, geologically active, there aren't as many good formations for injecting that CO2. And so as a consequence, you know, if, if, if CCS, if you take it as a given that CCS is an important enabling technology for all these forms of CDR, then places that just aren't as well suited for injecting CO2 into the subsurface, like California, are just not going to be as big players. So how much of the whole thing does Texas get to do? I mean, is it like 40%, 60%, 20%? What? Um, it's not It's not that high, but it's high. Let's see. I don't know that we express it in those numbers. Uh, yeah, so we, we do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know four times higher than the next highest state, and so it's it's quite large. Texas's contribution to national level ambition. So if we set a goal of the United States being net zero by 2050, Texas delivers by a long shot the most amount of negative emissions. Do you, do you think? I mean, your your model is unlikely to look too much at external economies as since big oil towns. So you've got a lot of people in that place who understand petroleum geology. You've got you know, colleges, recruitment agencies, you know, all the service industries that they need for the oil industry, brothels, all of that kind of stuff that make Texas mm. a great place to set up an oil company, right? So does your model look at those external economies of scale or does it just assume that they're not that important and the industries will just move around? Uh, the mod, the short answer is it does not take into account some of that, you know, some of that human capital associated with industries existing in particular regions. But I think it's a really valid point because if you think about it, it's not just human capital, is it? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's it, all of the support industries, they tend to cluster, right? So if you're trying to, the point I'm making, if you look at 1.5, for example, which is like a, the Oxy joint venture thing, I think it's now probably uh-huh. going to be bought back in, isn't it? Because Oxy bought carbon engineering. So it's, I think it's going to be world's largest DAC plant when it's built. Uh, that That's going to be built in Texas. And so people who you know work there and mm-hmm. um, have all the support services around them to make that work, 
if you're going to build another one, it makes it sensible to build it on the plot next door, right? Rather than going to Oklahoma or somewhere like that, right? You know, Oklahoma's not so far, but it's going to be cheaper to yeah. do it in the plot next door. Do you not think that this sort of clustering effect will will be perhaps more dominant? Your model appreciates and people are just going to keep sticking stuff in Texas until they run out of Texas to stick it in, rather than slowly filling up all the states at the same pace. Uh, yeah, I think I think that it is. Uh, I think that that's true. That being said, I think that, you know, moving people is fairly straightforward. I think, I mean, again, this is, this isn't like really venturing into the economics of it. And I just, <laughs> I'm an engineer, but it seems like in certain moving people straightforward, DAC, you know, direct air cap. Yeah, but uh, to be clear, what I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not talking about moving people. And, and, and I'd, I'd like to contest that point anyway, because when you're talking about moving people, I mean, moving people on a contract is relatively easy, but our brewing kind of, communities and whole families is much much harder right so people might people in the oil industry tend to be pretty mobile but they're not but they're only mobile from their regular base they don't necessarily move house any more often than people in any other industry right so they'd have a, a place placing in you know south america they'd fly out there work there for three weeks come back see the family for a week go out you know i've got mates that do exactly that kind of thing right working on oil boats and all kinds of things so yeah contractors are mobile within the industry but it doesn't mean that the industry doesn't have hubs. Like you've got Aberdeen in the UK, you've got um, Houston in America, you've got Calgary in um, Canada, and all of these places act as a, an industrial hub. And the yeah. further that you move away from those industrial hubs, the harder mm -hmm. and the more expensive it gets to operate. And my point is simply that it's generally going to be cheaper, in my view, to, to put you know 100 plants in Texas before you put one somewhere else, right? Because you've got, this economy, external economy of scale, which is driving the industry. And until you reach some real hard limit, like, for example, the poor space starts to become contested or, you know, mm. that you've got policy issues or there's, you know, massive shortages of fresh water or whatever resource that might become a constraint. It's generally easy just to scale an industry where, where it already is. And those industrial clustering things happen in all kinds of industries, like, mm. you know, television has been clustered in the UK West London, the post-production has been clustered in Soho. You know, they're, 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 they're not far apart, but they're you know, fundamentally very different industries, right? And, you know, a few miles down the road makes quite a bit of difference. I think this kind of clustering effect is likely to happen in uh, CDR as well, where, you know, once you've set up a big plant, like the 1.5 one in uh, Permian Basin, it seems more logical and more likely that they're going to set up the next plant in somewhere that is um, uh, co-located rather than going up the other end of the country, even if the geology is you know, very, very similar, right? Yeah, I mean, that is not something that we modeled any more than we could model things like, you know, what if state that was maybe not, you know, the, the second biggest state, for example, Indiana or Florida or Ohio, right? Midwestern, well, with exception of Florida, but the, the a lot a lot of the other sort of states that emerge as winners if you will so in, in term in the sense that they deploy a lot of cdr a lot of them tend to be in the in the midwest of the united states because those are agriculturally active places with a lot of land and the geology of many of those states is also fairly well suited for geologic carbon okay, storage that's that's where you get your back so right yeah you would get a lot of back the farming regions you get a lot of backs in texas as well but you know, but in the in the in the agricultural Midwest, you get a lot of that. And, you know, Bex relies on 
requires geologic carbon storage as well. And so just to sort of close the loop on, on the arguments you were making earlier about clustering, I mean, I think, you know, so our model does not, does not capture that, but I, I completely agree with you that that's a, that's a factor in the real world. But if you were to look at that, I think you would have to look at a bunch of other things too, like, you know, the use of tax incentives, for example, to draw industries from one state to another and competition and things like this. All, you know, there's, there's probably, economists probably have decent handle on how those processes sort of work together, right? But you could certainly imagine that if Texas starts doing this because it's the most favorable place and there start to be jobs created and there starts to be buzz around a particular new emerging industry that, you know, a state like, you know, Ohio that maybe has, or, or Pennsylvania is a maybe better example because they have more historical oil and gas and coal jobs, they might create tax incentives to try and attract some of those businesses to their state. And so then suddenly you've got some of the same activity going on. So it's not like you're filling up all the poor space in Texas before you start doing any of that in other states. Okay. So you got so just to summarize what you're saying, there are there are two two factors that might make it likely that you're going to see more spreading. Firstly, that you've got a range of different technologies. So it's not all DAC. So DAC mm-hmm. might be a good place. Texas might be a good place to do DAC, but then you've got Bex and Bex doesn't necessarily favor Texas in the same way. And there are other places like, you know, Pennsylvania that you think might be as good or better. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that the politicians are going to be trying to pull barrel their various different constituency interests to make sure that as much of the money is spread around rather than having Texas benefit from the whole industrial scaling of an entire industry, right? Mm. Yep. Okay. Well, I think that's probably likely to have summarized much of the paper and given it a bit of context. Does that reflect your your view? Have we, have we covered everything that's important or are there, there, is there an important dimension to the paper that we've not yet touched on? I, I think the only other, well, there's a, there's a few others. I think I think one of them would be the realization that if you set a national level goal, like we want to be net zero by 2050, right, which is the sort of most popular, one of the most popular ways to think about climate ambition these days, right? That's the way a lot of like nations are doing it and so on. If you if you drill down and look at subnational jurisdictions like states, what you see is that some of them can achieve net zero much, much earlier than that, and others are potentially never going to ach- achieve net zero. And so well, yeah, because if you've got a per state which is not very populous, yeah. like Wyoming or Nevada, you only need to have a little bit of capacity and whoosh, you've got it sorted out, right? Right. So that you have to think about positive emissions and the potential to deliver negative emissions. But then, you know, that raises other questions around, you know, could some states really grow up industries to really bail out others? And and then if if those states that that develop that industry have regional consequences, right? Like all their water's getting used for Becks, for example. It does that does that mean that we're not going to do this? That, that this is politically, you know, un unachievable because of the consequences. Sort of the same the same question we talked about earlier when we were talking about equity, right? And so trying to trying to really drill down and challenge some of these assumptions, I think is really, really critical at this stage. So that so that people are are very 
honest about about what we're saying when we say we want to deploy well, this at the scale. There's an, there's an important philosophical point in terms of like the, the scale that this has to be delivered at. You know, what, what kind of granularity is, is important? You might say, well, it's important as states on a state level, you know, like the, as in countries, take responsibility for their emissions. But the idea that, you know, that the United States needs a granularity Beyond that, you might say that that's superfluous. You might say, well, it doesn't really matter whether it's Oklahoma or Texas or Pennsylvania or California that does the negative emissions. It's all, you know, it's all Americans and they move around quite a bit. They're quite a mobile nation within their own borders. So what does it matter what state it happens in? That's not a, it's not a stupid argument, is it? The point we're trying to make with this paper is that ultimately for these forms of CDR, which haven't been deployed at that scale really anywhere in the world they in order to in order to achieve these these rates of removal that, that these global models assume we're going to need these things are going to have to be deployed at the community scale somebody is going to have to build these facilities somebody's going to have to show up for work somebody's going to have to supply the water and the natural gas and the electricity to these to these facilities you know and so Regardless of whether you're looking across U.S. state borders or whether you're looking within, you know, different parts of the U.K. or different parts of France, what, regardless of the country or the context, these are going to have to be cited in people's backyards. And we need to really get serious about understanding what those consequences are going to be, because if there are, and I think we've raised a number of different ways in which these could be um, showstoppers, right? Where people are going to say, "Oh no, you know the the equity consequences or whatever are just are just too great." Then, well, then is that is that true? I mean, you, you, I, I originally took that view. You know, who's going to suffer? You then made the opposite point that people might view this as a great industrial opportunity. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. it to some extent it comes across as a result of of you know where you're where you're from, your background is, and. Like if you're in Hamartha's Harbour or Long Island or whatever, where you've got a lot of rich people mm-hmm. and viewing a particular part of the country as a playground, then you might not see this as being um, uh, something you want, right? You know, you might not want a big dad plant down the road on your waterfront condo on Long, Long Island, right? But if you live in a poor part of, you know, an Indian reservation in Wyoming or whatever, you mm-hmm. might view that as being massively beneficial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, where, where, where do you? I mean, do you think that the areas where people are you know, tolerant of emerging industries and hungry for work are going to overlap with the areas where this stuff is needed, or are you generally talking about places that pretty places with lots of rich nimbies who are going to get lawyered up and throw sand in the gears? Where what do you think the most likely outcome is going to be? Yeah. Well, you know, the paper doesn't get into nimby issues at all, but you know, it's it's no, I know, of... but it's just I'm just asking yeah. your opinion. Yeah, it's beginning to sort of understand and 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 sketch out where some of these might emerge. Some of those issues might emerge. I mean, I think I think the, the closest analog we have right now to some where these and and how some of this might play out is the enormous scale up in renewable energy projects that's taking place right now, and where that's happening, and why it's happening, where it's happening, where you're seeing sort of local opposition and so on. And so some of that may end up ultimately. The, the playbook may look really similar for CDR. I, you know, I'm not really sure. It's it's still too early to know. And, well, I mean, and... crude, crudely, it, like the degree of opposition is, is mm-hmm. based on the degree of wealth in an area, right? So, you know, poor people want jobs, rich people want nice views, right? Well, that's what so, it's 
that's what an economist would tell you. But I think that there's there's a whole lot of other stuff going on too, right? I mean, I think that that at least in the United States, climate change is a is a is a really politicized concept. And so, well, you say that, but DAC is uh, CDR in general is really not that politicized. It's quite surprising how bipartisan it, it's a good it. point. No, it's it's absolutely a good point. I would say to the... Is, is weird. I'll tell you what, I've got a personal anecdote about this. It's quite funny, right? So mm-hmm. I went to a conference, an oil man's, it was in Houston, right? Mm-hmm. A place I expected to hate, but I actually loved. I went to a conference about uh, DAG in Houston. and spent like t- a week with all these oil men talking about carbon removal. And they were very enthusiastic about it. They were all about carbon removal. They thought it was great. And nobody for the whole week mentioned climate change. It was just complete taboo. It was like the elephant in a room that no one dared ever mention. Right? Because it's the, it's a climate change that's politicised, but but carbon removal just just isn't. Like the conservatives have just seemed to be, you know, completely uh, happy to have that totally contradictory opinion in their head that that carbon removal is an unalloyed good and. But yeah, we don't need to acknowledge the actual reason why it's happening. It's a remarkable cultural phenomenon when you, when you sort of spend time around these people. But it, it's, it was one of the most striking impressions I've got from the, the conference I went to. It was very, very interesting because of that, is to be exposed to that culture in that oil town and sort of see how people reacted to issues around the climate debate as a, as a result of it, because it really wasn't what I was expecting at all. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good observation. And, and I've actually. Uh, I've experienced it as well, exactly what you're talking about. And I think it plays out even at the highest levels of government in the United States, you know, where people that won't talk to you about climate change are completely willing to discuss, you know, direct air capture or whatever, and, and you know, ignoring the underlying reason why you would want to do direct air capture. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And and so I think, you know, where we are right now with, with CDR is I think, you know, I think we just need to I think we need to just stress test a lot of these assumptions to help people understand, you know, what what we're talking about and what this really means. And if 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 a lot of it's a non-starter, we need to know that sooner. Well, what does your model say about this? Because your model your model tells you where this stuff is like to go, right? So does it give you a clear indication of which parts the America's sort of political landscape are going to end up being problematic. You know, your model doesn't directly tell you that, but you can combine that with your general knowledge to give an understanding of it, right? So, does the model output? How does the model output inform that, even if it's an indirect way that it's informing this? Your mm. model's not. Your model's not flagging up NIMBYs, but you personally know where the NIMBYs are, right? So, where do you think there's going to be issues of public consent for this? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think, again, here it's worth looking at the case of something we are doing right now, which is building out a lot of renewable projects. And a lot of those need to be sited in places with a lot of land where land is cheap. So they're, they tend to be sited in some of the parts of the United States that are sort of most politically conservative and most unwilling to discuss climate change as a as a motivation for the energy transition. And so. I think that, you know, some of these same dynamics could play out in this, especially if you look at the results of our paper, which are very much suggesting that the places you'd want to deploy CDR, places in the Midwest, Texas, and so forth. And so, you know, trying to connect the dots there is is an interesting exercise, not one that we did 
explicitly in this paper. This paper was really just looking at the underlying inputs and and what the consequences would be of doing this. But I think you could you could certainly have a conversation about some of these things. Modeling modeling some of this politics and some of these you know uh, NIMBY issues and some of the preference and you know I'm not aware of of any groups that are doing that. I mean I I do think that there are some. There's a lot of discussion papers around it. It's not necessarily econometric models, right? Which exactly. is what I was trying to suggest you might comment on it. But you mentioned about conservative wind going in conservative areas. We certainly get that in the UK. I mean, I, well before I got involved in academia, I was doing kind of local site battles about renewable energy mm. in my local area. And in fact, we were quite, one of the things I'm quite proud of, perhaps should be a bit more proud of than I am. I spend a lot of time writing papers that no one ever reads, but I, remember, I should remember that I had a former life in climate. And I actually was involved in the campaign to get a wind farm in my local area. And, and, and in that year, when it was approved, it was the only one that had been approved at a local level. We built such a groundswell of support for that individual uh, wind farm that it got approved without appeal to the central government, which is the, seen as being the, the normal way that approvals were granted. People were just happy with it. They wanted the wind farm and, they, and the local community was happy with it. And it got built, right? So, um, you know, these side battles can surprise you. But yep. is is wind in America as politicized as it is in places like the UK, or is it is it is it not seen as being as as, as political an issue? Uh, I would say. I mean, I'm not an expert in this area, but I would say that it is politicized for sure. I mean, I think that there are the people that you know opposed to it because you know for reasons that really are are not. I would say based in science questions and then there are people that have concerns Bird killing subsidy mills and things like that yeah right killing i mean, I mean I, on twitter i tend to you know I, I deliberately tend to follow people that genteel academics don't follow i like to try and get an understanding of how you know the like working class politics is plays out on the ground right and um and i i follow a lot of you know quite right wing accounts that most of them you know a lot of them spout complete nonsense like i you know, don't afford them any credibility at all but it's interesting to see the way they frame issues right even if you don't agree with what they're saying or even if you don't not only just don't agree with it but if you think it's just out on out rubbish that they're saying but yeah that i do get very much that kind of anti-wind narrative you know lots of tropes about you know oh it takes 17 years for a wind turbine to pay off the cost of its manufacture and stuff like that or, or whatever they're spouting this week and none of it is actually true but it doesn't matter it's still interesting to see the nonsensical arguments that they're raising but it doesn't surprise me that wind is politicized in that way in the US because a lot of the accounts I follow are, you know, US centric accounts, right? So it's, uh, I'm getting the same kind of memes and thought patterns from those people as UK accounts, right? Yeah. The so political right is quite international, right? Yeah. So then bringing it back to this particular paper, you think about, okay, well, what does it mean in the United States that some of these states, some of these places that, we identified in our paper as being really good sites for deploying a lot of CDR, right? Like in the Midwest, for example, where there's a lot of agriculture and it's very flat and it's very windy. And so you can basically lease land from landowners to build out wind farms. And you, the fraction of the, these are big farms, right? Primarily, that's the way that the businesses are structured. And so you take a pretty small fraction of their land, right? And you build the wind projects and they can continue farming. And so that is, you know, that watching that, the way that that has played out and is playing out in real time right now 
is interesting and valuable if you want to say, okay, well, what would it look like to come into these same communities and say, okay, right now you're on a soybean corn rotation, but we need you to switch to whatever, switchgrass, you know, some bioenergy crop that we're going to use for BECs at large scale. And then say, okay, well, what would that actually mean? It would, that's probably a much bigger shift to say, I need you to grow this bioenergy crop than building these wind projects, right? Because the wind projects at the end of the day are just like a revenue source for these farmers that allows them to keep doing what they've always done, right? They're just like giving up a small amount of their land. And in, in return, they're getting these huge rents from the, from the companies that are building the wind projects. And so for, by and large, to your point earlier about, you know, what are the financial incentives for folks, you know, and people are going to be rational economic actors that are just going to respond to these, these, these opportunities. I think it's really important to have conversations about like, can these farmers even switch to these bioenergy crops? Would they want to? What would it mean for these communities, you know, to start growing, you know, pick your crop and then, and then building. Where are you talking about like a monocrop? Or are you talking about things like cover crops? In no, we're not, like you know, we're not, yeah, we're not getting to that level. But I think, I think that, you know, since we, we sort of got a little, we've gotten a little far from the paper at this point, but, you know, we, we are talking about... All the best reviewer two episodes degenerate into a sort of like <laughs> drunken pub rant. We always yeah. try and aspire to that, you know, yeah. like 11 p.m. at a conference when people are yeah. four beers in and they're just yeah. pointing at each other and shouting. That's the ideal right. for a yeah. reviewer two podcast episode. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, we shouldn't have scheduled this for 10 in the morning in, in Virginia. Then. But so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that there are interesting there are interesting connections. You know, obviously, our paper doesn't get into them. But I think that if you were to you know overlay a map of where a lot of renewable energy is being deployed in the United States, and then at the same time, look at some of the maps we generated for this analysis, you would see a lot of similarities in terms of where you might want to deploy these and cite some of these projects and so then the question becomes you know what is what does that mean what can we learn from the ongoing uh, energy transition and what does it mean about our our reliance or our you know presumed reliance on on cdr okay and can you speak a bit more about those cultural transitions i mean do you think that people are going to be willing to undertake a cultural transition to changing from you know a food crop to a switchgrass or miscanthus or Whatever it is that they're fast, you know, fast rotation willow coppice. What, what do you yeah, think the issue? I don't know. Well, we'll leave that to Holly Jean Buck. I mean, Holly Jean Buck does this sort of stuff. We tried to get on the podcast before, and I think I managed to screw up and not turn up for the interview. It's a bit embarrassing, really, because I, I don't normally make mistakes like that. But I think on her one, we did. So she, she spends a lot of time looking at transitions. And yeah, we need to get that one scheduled and get her back. There are plenty of other people who work on it. So um, just as a a general note, a bit of kind of administrivia for review too. If you've got a paper you want to talk about, by all means, make contact with us. We, we do, like, I think 99% of our stuff is outreach. Almost never do we get people who come to us and say, we'd like to cover a paper. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Like, people seem very happy to talk about their papers. I don't understand why they don't want to approach us with those papers, same papers. It seems a bit odd, but you know, that's just how it works. But if you've got a paper you want to talk about it, then do come to us and say, what do you think is an interesting paper? And take you seriously and try and cover it if we think there's something that people like to be interested in um and as another point we always fail to tell people to subscribe to the podcast we actually get most of our listeners come from subscription right we don't uh, we get we know that because a lot of the downloads come before we tweet so we often will release an episode and then tweet about it later 
and a lot of the downloads will appear well before the um, well before it's published. So we know that subscribers are driving a lot of our engagement. So if you're not subscribed, then um, please do if you like it. If you don't like it, then don't bother. If you think this episode has been rubbish, you probably won't like the other ones because they're all quite similar. So, um, yeah, please do subscribe. Tell your mates about us as well. If you put us on your social media, it's a good idea if you just sort of tweet the link out. If you think that we've covered something which is interesting, controversial, you know, something that you think other people should be listening to, do give us a share because it's, it's helpful to, you know, to get, get the word out. Um, yeah, for sure. So anyway, that's, that's our self, self-promotion over and done with. Um, yeah. What else have you got in the pipeline? What have you got planned? What else do you want to talk about, about your career as a whole you say that jay was one of your students i assume you got rid of him now is that correct he graduated and he's on to bigger and better things so i you know a couple things one is yeah you should definitely get you should definitely get uh a holly on the podcast if if you can she you know to, to she is probably the smartest person out there talking about these issues right now talking about sort of the the human dimension of cdr and geoengineering. And so I think you should definitely try and get her. Our group, uh, answer your question about, you know, what we've got in the in the works. And I'll, you know, I think I think that the reason that academics probably don't reach out is because oftentimes, you know, the the we're trained to sort of do the work and then just put it out into the world and and not promote it as much. And so that's just kind of the nature, particularly on in the sciences, you know, just wanting to... Be... Well, no one's going to cite your paper if they haven't heard about it, right? Right, well, yeah, that's I, fair. I've done that's some work fair. on gender, and I think that a lot of women with family responsibilities have trouble getting to conferences, and it's probably quite an important reason why their work is not as cited as yeah. men in their field of similar career status. So, yeah, you know, get, get in touch with the reviewer too and, and ask for ask for a podcast because you know same people you might meet at a pop conference and present your work to for five minutes you get an hour and a half with us so mm-hmm. it's quite a good deal for you um yeah yeah that's um, fair. i wonder um, if you could i wonder if you could just talk briefly about the uh, the other authors because you mentioned jay who i know but um uh, uh who was the first author on the paper so chloe was a phd student in our in our lab and uh, she is now since graduated and she's working as a as an analyst now she's she's got a job doing sort of energy systems analysis and it's a lot more than she would have got in academia yeah but she's doing research so she's still kind of doing she she just got her master's degree and she's you know she's doing she's doing great work so chloe's threw off to the races the other authors are um members of our collaboration so i mentioned that that this is a collaboration between university of maryland and university of virginia and so so uh, sorry chloe's at the electric power research institute which is a u.s-based group that that does a lot of work on sort of utility scale issues so there are a few authors on here from university of maryland jickery and then so yang and Jay, we mentioned earlier, and Heywan are all there. And then, and actually, some of them have since left there. And so Heywan's now in Korea teaching uh, teaching integrated modeling in, in a Korean university. And Yang is now um, in China teaching integrated modeling at Peking University. Bill Shobe, Scott Doney, and, and me are the three from, from University of Virginia. So Bill is a, 
an economist and interested in sort of policy and emissions trading and uh, a, a great guy. And Scott is also he's a he's an environmental scientist and uh, an expert in in carbon cycling. With a most his, most of his work has been in sort of ocean science, but he's got a, a big carbon cycling side to his his scholarship as well, and that's how he contributes to the collaboration. Okay, and so is your career going to be more of the same, doing more IAM type stuff in the future, or are you pivoting, not doing any more carbon removal, or what? So I'm actually trained as environmental engineer, and most of my sort of my day job is is focused these days on developing low carbon cement. So most of my PhD students. That's a whole new podcast. I hope to get you back. To yeah, there's an awful lot yeah. happening in that field, right? Yeah. yeah so that's most of my that's my day job so that's most of what i do what company do you work for or are you, are you doing it as a researcher as a researcher so we're developing okay. chemistries and trying to get them out of the lab and into into use um but yeah i'm happy to talk about some well i'm not i'm not going to let you ran r- 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 on about that now because that's going to be a no, 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 we don't have time. if not another five yeah but do come back and talk to us about that that'd be very interesting i'd like to yeah to, to you again. yeah we can talk cement someday but on the modeling side, the other half of my group that does modeling, we are continuing to do the integrated modeling work. We've got a collaboration with a group in China, actually, to try and understand how some of these regional dynamics might play out there versus here, because in China, the urban-rural divide is much more pronounced. And, and obviously, governance is completely different. And so when you talk about saying, okay, we got to develop you know, a gigaton just for our country or you know, whatever, some big number of CDR, what would that look like in China versus the United States? So there's some interesting... Well, China would just have it done by tea time tomorrow. Yeah, 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 exactly. So trying to understand some of that is is really interesting. And that's where, where we are with, with our collaborators in China. And then, you know, we're going in a couple of different directions. So one is we have a project that's focused on just Virginia. And so you ask questions and then that's interdisciplinary. So we're working with folks that are actually doing like survey research and they will in the coming you know, six, 12 months, be able to answer questions like the one you asked about willingness to change from historical crops to bioenergy crops, right? And so some of that, so that's a really fascinating project because we've got engineers, but we've also got, you know, we've got social scientists, we've got landscape architects, we've got, you know, all kinds of different disciplines and, and data scientists that are trying to develop decision support tools for the state of Virginia to, to think about how CDR might be deployed on the land and what that might mean. So we've got we've got that effort going and we've got also separately an effort to develop what are called well computed general equilibrium models, which are economic models that are really used to understand regional scale consequences of, of emerging and, and, and technologies and really test how policy interventions might play out. And so I'm not leading that effort, but it's very complementary with with sort of what we're doing here to try and get a better sense for how CDR might might look um, at the... Okay. Well, none of that's as interesting as cement. Um, so um, <laughs> that's probably because I'm just a tedious engineering type. But we definitely want to get you to come back and talk about cement. So drop me yeah. a mail after this and we'll, we'll get you to come back and uh, have a bit of a nerd out on cement. Now, it pleased me greatly and probably invoked great misery in wailing and gnashing your teeth and all our listeners who probably much less interested in cement than I am, but I'm going to try and fix that because I think it's wonderful stuff and you should all spend your time thinking about it. So that's the plan. Um, right. Well, if you've got nothing else you want to say in your defence, I will hurl you out of the studio. And thank you for coming on. I'm, I don't know. Am I going to reject your paper or not? 
I'm just feeling quite lazy. It's a hot day. I can't be bothered to it. I'm just going to be indifferent to it. Come to no firm conclusion. Let the editor try and work out whether I did or didn't mean to reject the paper. I'm going to have a degree of what, what the Americans call, I think, strategic ambiguity. That's what you call it, isn't it? So that's my response to your paper. Thank you very much for coming on. And I very much hope you'll be back to talk to us about concrete cement and all that other stuff fairly soon. Sounds Thank you. good. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks.